Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Will the son-in-law bring down the Trump administration? Whoa, starting to look like it. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, not Monday. That was a big holiday yesterday, Memorial Day. Hope you had a great, big, long, and happy uh, and fun-filled Memorial Day weekend and took time out yesterday to remember what it's all about and to uh, give a big thank you to those who are wearing the uniform today and those who have put on the uniform to keep us safe and to protect this country over the years. And now we move back into the rest of the week on a Tuesday, May 30. Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. As we come to you live, as always, from our nation's capital and our studio on Capitol Hill, with the news of the day here in Washington, Donald Trump back in town. He's already tweeting up a tweeting up a storm. Uh, the, Congress is out of session today, but they've got a lot of unfinished work to do. Uh, and Angela Merkel in uh, Germany telling European leaders, well, it's pretty clear after we got a close-up look at Donald Trump, uh, that we're going to have to do this on our own from now on because we can't count on the United States anymore. What a sad, sad state of affairs. Thank you for nothing, Donald Trump. Off we go and look forward to hearing from you. You know how to do it on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments on the news of the day so we know how it all uh, hangs uh, for you and your family and your community. We'll get right to the big stories of the day, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. We go to Jupiter, Florida. Tiger Woods had a not very nice Memorial Day. He was arrested and charged with a DUI early Monday morning, 3 a.m., and taken to the Palm Beach County Jail. He was released on his own recognizance after spending about four hours in jail. Now, he put out a statement yesterday, later in the afternoon, says that alcohol was not involved. He says, quote, I want mm. the public to know that alcohol was not involved. What happened was an unexpected reaction to prescribed medications. I didn't realize the mix of medications had affected me so strongly. He pointed out that he did have surgery about five weeks ago. It's a wrap. It's over. <laughs> it's over. I mean, it's, it's been sad. over, but it's sad. It's been over for a long time. Yeah. That mug shot of Tiger Woods, dude. Oh my god. 
He's been I, I dead rec- inside for I a couple years. Yeah, and that it, mugshot, you look in, you look at his eyes, and boy, oh boy, there's, no. there's just not No, it's there. sad. It's sad, really sad. A guy, guy who was so popular and so good and yeah, so great yeah. at one time. 14 majors he won. 14 majors. Uh, so what were the, what where, was he doing out at 718 on a, a three, yeah. Memorial Day? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It's no good. Ten miles from his house. Nothing good happens, Uh huh. especially when you look at his. Hungover breakfast at a gas station, <laughs> most likely. <laughs> Seriously. Sorry. Uh, let's go to the movies because Memorial Day box office had some big, big winners, right? We were supposed to see big numbers from Pirates of the Caribbean. Baywatch was supposed to be big. Memorial Day revenue at the box office falls to its lowest level in two decades. This has, been, this has not been a good summer for it's Hollywood. Not good. I, I didn't even no. know Pirates of the Caribbean was out. It's still a thing, apparently. And the new movie, Dead Men Tell No Tales, won the holiday weekend, but it only brought in $77 million over the four days, which is not great. No. It's not what they were hoping for. The Baywatch movie came out. That was a gigantic flop. $23 million is all that made. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy still holding on to the number two spot. They brought in $25 million over the long weekend. Like I said, it's the lowest level in 18 years. And the Cannes Film Festival is a bust this year. Well, yes. No, I mean, nothing no, no, nothing good. No, no, you know, no, there's no excitement at all. Not so. a lot of excitement. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we have to do something this fall to bounce back or else... Uh, hmm. Huh. The Academy Awards next year could be an interesting show, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. All right, we'll take it. Tuesday, May 30. Got no choice. Here we are. It is The Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. How about it? You'll find us uh, starting out here in Washington, D.C., but ending up wherever you happen to be in this great land of ours. We are there with you with all the news of the day. Oh, my God, Donald Trump is just tweeting something. Peter, catch it. Something across my phone. I don't want to hear from him this morning. Uh, I hope you had a great weekend. We are here to bring you up to date on, again, the news of the day. On YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the great WCPT out in Chicago. Hello, Chicago land uh, and the big city and in the suburbs surrounding. Hello on Free Speech TV. And uh, if you haven't already done so, join us on Patreon.com. That's our new thing, new content, exclusive content on Patreon.com. Costs you just a little bit every month, but you'll get stuff from us that nobody else will see otherwise. Uh, and we're still working, putting together that great new podcast on the making of Bernie Sanders. Yes, big stories to start off today. Jared Kushner in hot water over that secret Russian connection. Is he ever? Angela Merkel says nobody can trust the United States anymore. Donald Trump returning from Europe, accomplishing nothing but pissing everybody off. The White House in pure damage control and, yes, Tiger Woods ending his career in the drunk tank. Well, it was maybe it wasn't the drunk tank. Maybe it was the drug tank. But at any rate, um, arrested yesterday morning, as Peter just told us. 
Where do we start? You know, let's start with some voices that we have missed. Yes, it's uh, commencement time around the country. Uh, and a couple of good friends popped up yesterday up at Wellesley, over the weekend, I should say, at Wellesley, Hillary Clinton, a rare uh, repeat public uh, performance saying, don't worry about me, I'm doing okay. You may have heard that things didn't exactly go the way I planned. (laughs) But you know what? I'm doing okay. Good to hear her voice again. And she says, you know, she understands what college students are going through today because she went through the same thing when she was in college, except with a different president by the name of Richard Nixon. We were furious about the past presidential election (laughs) of a man whose presidency would eventually end in disgrace with his impeachment for obstruction of justice. Uh, An unusual kind of a commencement address, but obviously the crowd was all with her there at Wellesley, and she knew that that going in. And up uh, up at Cornell in the beautiful, beautiful Ithaca, New York, a campus I've enjoyed visiting, and a little town we've enjoyed visiting up there on several occasions. Um, Joe Biden. Yep. Come on, America. Let's get it back. It's time for America to get up. It's time to regain our sense of unity and purpose. And remember who we are. With all the brain power and energy I see in front of me, I know that nothing and no one in this world can beat us. Uh, yes, indeed. You know what? Boy. Uh, it's nice Joe, to hear him again, too. Nice to hear him again. If Joe Biden had run, he would have won. He'd be president of the United States. By the way, they made him his own ice cream flavor as gift. No, Royal really? University did. Yeah. Red, white, and blue, or red, white, and Biden, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Good for Joe. All right, Joe. Yeah, stay out there, Joe. We need you there. Yes, indeed. And, uh, yep, Donald Trump made it back to the White House uh, Saturday uh, after nine days in Europe, uh, a trip where he actually accomplished absolutely nothing, uh, again, except pissing everybody off. Think about it. Um, he, what, you know, okay, first he went to Saudi Arabia. All right, we made a big arms deal for Saudi Arabia, which we've been selling them arms forever, right? Great, so that was like nothing new. Okay, right. Uh, I, I, I saw the best response to that Saudi Arabia visit was that the Saudis played Donald Trump. They knew what he liked. They knew he loved to be treated like a king, and they treated him like one, starting with the red carpet from the moment he arrived and sitting down with the king and all that attention. He loved it. He craved it. Uh, went on to Israel. Yeah, he had um, meetings uh, with the prime minister of of, uh, of Israel and the president of the Palestinian territories, but nothing was accomplished. He, you know, he insisted we're very close to peace in the Middle East because the, both these sides want peace. Uh, but when he said that in Israel uh, um, uh, with a group of Israeli leaders, none of them even applauded. Certainly Benjamin Netanyahu didn't say, I agree, we're really close. No, it was just all talk, all talk. Uh, went off to Europe. Okay, he met with the Pope. By the way, did you see that picture of his family and the Pope? The Pope, does, the Pope looks like he'd rather be anywhere else but standing alongside of Donald Trump. All right, so it was obligatory... Uh, at least he didn't commit any faux pas with the Pope, but nothing was accomplished. Went off to NATO, 
lectured. That, well, that's a low bar, by the way. That is a low bar. <laughs> At yeah. least he didn't commit a terrible faux pas. No, right, yeah, right. We got okay. that going for us. Yeah, he didn't fart. Nice, yeah. Publicly, all right. So, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? It was just okay. Yeah. God, he got through the meeting without a, without making a fool of himself. Uh, he went off to NATO, and as we know, this this horrible meeting there. Um, very rude, boorish behavior, lecturing the NATO leaders, telling them that they hadn't been doing a good job, that we hadn't been able to count on them, even though, could I point out, even though, right, NATO forces have been in Afghanistan for 16 years. What were they doing in Afghanistan? Whose war is it in Afghanistan? Our war. They are there supporting American troops. They are putting their people on the line, spending their dollars, and spending the lives of their young men and women in Afghanistan. Why? Because it was a terrorist attack against the United States of America. It wasn't a terrorist attack on Europe. It was a terrorist attack against the United States of America. And Europe responded, and they've been there by our side for 16 years. And Donald Trump goes to NATO headquarters and sticks his finger in the eyes of the NATO leaders. And then pushes the head of Mont- Montenegro out of the way so he can get up in the front line on well, the that's photo. That's a good point. Yeah, right. I mean, it was just disgusting behavior on his part. Uh, and then he went down to Termina, uh, same thing. Uh, the famous, most famous part of the photo op in in Termina is that um, the world leaders all walked about seven hundred yards to the uh, spot where they were going to have their photo taken. Donald Trump refused to walk. Uh, and so the rest of them did walk and then had to wait about a half an hour until Donald Trump showed up in a golf cart, which they sought out, especially for him because he refused to walk that distance. And then, of course, he also refused to sign on with them uh, on the confirming and reaffirming their commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, Paris Climate Accord, which Donald Trump says he will decide this week what he's going to do about it and word is from the White House, he is going to pull the United States out of it. So again, sticking his finger in the eye of NATO. And by the way, back to NATO, when he was there, he also refused to endorse and confirm and embrace the important Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which says we all consider an attack on any one country to be an attack on everybody, and we will all respond, which again is what NATO forces, NATO countries did in response to the attacks on the United States on September 11. So all in all, uh, Donald Trump accomplished absolutely nothing in these nine days uh, except piss all of our allies off. Uh, And then he comes home to an even bigger mess over uh, over Russia and the Russian connection. Uh, First, back to to the European trip for just a second, because if you listen uh, to Donald Trump, when he talked to um, the uh, American forces uh, in Sicily before he left, he said this was a spectacularly successful trip. Be nine days, and I think we hit a home run no matter where we are. <laughs> yeah, a home run, hardly a home run. You know, he he just puts his stuff out there all the time. There is no sense of reality at all to his statements or his tweets you know what metrics what metrics would you be using to call that trip a home run yeah okay name one thing you accomplished donald all right you didn't fall down the stairs of air force one congratulations congratulations yeah and uh 
and Donald Trump in terms of uh, peace. Yes, we're like we're almost there, he told the troops. Peace through strength, right? You'll understand that when you get a little bit older. Peace through strength. And that's what we're going to have. We're going to have a lot of strength and we're going to have a lot of peace. That's what we're going to have. We're going to have a lot of strength and we're going to have a lot of peace. That's an actual quote. That's an actual quote. Isn't that embarrassing? I mean, it's just this guy is such a. That's dunce. what we're going to have. We're going uh, to have a lot of peace. We're going to have a lot of peace. We have a lot of strength. I'm glad to hear that. We're going to have a lot of peace. Yeah. Kind of a lot of peace. Okay, Jesus good. Christ. All right, nothing to worry about. He said it. We're going to have a lot of peace. Yep, indeed. Yep, coming back to Ooh, the mess. Man. Things got even messier on the Russian connection. He might have put it behind him for nine days, uh, but it didn't go away. It is worse than ever, and now it zeroes in. We've been talking about this. Uh, we were told that the FBI, there was a person uh, of interest inside the White House. It wasn't with the Russian connection. It wasn't just Paul Manafort's ties. Michael Flynn's ties and Michael Flynn's lies, uh, Carter Page's ties. No, no, no. It went beyond that. There was actually somebody inside the Oval Office, and it turns out that it was Jared Kushner. And then the Washington Post reporting over the weekend why the FBI is interested because, and by the way, the White House has not denied this. Take it as a fact. Back in December 2016, Jared Kushner uh, had a meeting at Trump Tower, uh, a meeting that with uh, Ambassador Kislyak. Uh, this was his second meeting with Kislyak because Kislyak suggested after their first meeting that Kushner meet with this Russian banker. By the way, a bank that is the subject of sanctions. This bank, the United States has sanctions against this bank, but Kushner met with the president of the bank uh, for the purpose, we're told, reported, not not denied, confirmed, uh, for the purpose of perhaps investigating the possibility of establishing a back channel with Moscow using communications equipment at the Russian embassy. So he's going to have this secret connection, secret line, and this was a secret meeting, by the way, it wasn't announced. Jared Kushner, the Russian ambassador, and the head and this big Russian banker. Establishing, again, a secret back channel to Vladimir Putin using communications equipment that the Russians have, not Americans, going around the Russian uh, American intelligence services, which immediately raises two questions, right? One is, why did they want to make a deal with Russia? Think about this. This is Russia that seized invaded and seized Crimea, Russia that invaded and still has troops in eastern Ukraine, Russia that bombed the hell out of Syria, and Russia that interfered in our election and tried to throw the election to Donald Trump, which 17 intelligence agencies had just confirmed in December, right before Jared Kushner sits down with them and says, we want to make a deal. I mean, why? And the second question is, who told him to have that meeting? You know damn well. Jared Kushner, the real estate tycoon, Donald Trump's son-in-law, no government experience at all, did not act on his own. So you asked the question about— Did not about, act on his own. You asked the question about the Russia connection and why have this conversation in the first place. So CNN has a story from early this morning. Uh, I'm just going to read right from their, their story. 
Uh, Russian government officials discussed having potentially derogatory information about then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and some of his top aides in conversations intercepted by U.S. intelligence during the 2016 election, according to two former intelligence officials and a congressional source. One source described the information as financial in nature and said the discussion centered on whether the Russians had leverage over Trump's inner circle. The source said the intercepted communication suggested to U.S. intelligence that Russians believed, quote, they had the ability to influence the administration through the derogatory information, end quote. Uh, Let's see the tax returns and let's find out what are these business deals with Russia that Donald Trump has that... Uh, that you know that they that the Russians knew about and knew they could use absolutely no that's Jim Shuto at CNN damn good reporter breaking that story today um, so there are two things I think the, the White House has to worry about here this is this is this is bad stuff the one is we just talked about the substance the meeting we don't know whether sanctions came up in this meeting. But just establishing a secret back channel with the Russians using equipment in their embassy to deal with Putin secretly and privately and through this back channel going around U.S. intelligence agencies. That's the substance. That's pretty bad. And who who suggested to Jared Kushner or who approved Jared Kushner's suggestion? If it was his, which I doubt. But, you know, Jared Kushner did not act alone. That's the substance. The optics are just as bad. The optics are in front of the United States Congress, in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and probably the House Intelligence Committee, you're going to see testimony not only from people who are now outsiders, were insiders, now outsiders, like Michael Flynn or Paul Manafort or Carter Page, people around Donald Trump. You're going to see Jared Kushner, the vice, the president's son-in-law, testifying in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee about his dealings with the Russians. That, there's no, no matter how you slice it, that is not good for Donald Trump. It's not good for the country. Uh, this is so Nixonian. It is such echoes of Watergate and the people close to Richard Nixon from the Oval Office coming up to Capitol Hill to testify in front of Congress. That's going to happen. There's no way they can stop it. And, of course, the administration sends its... Uh, Spokespeople out to defend Jared Kushner all the way, starting over in Europe. These people, you know, I used to have a lot of respect for them, but the more they become just uh, uh, repeating Donald Trump talking points, the less respect you have to have. Um, uh, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, saying, hey, first of all, he said he wasn't going to comment on Jared, and then he says, no, 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 the back channel is no problem. Generally speaking, about back-channel communications, what that allows you to do is to communicate in a discreet manner. So it doesn't predispose you toward any sort of content of that conversation or anything. So, no, I would not be concerned about it. Oh, come on. And then John Kelly, former general, he's always once a general, always a general, John, general John Kelly, head of the Department of Homeland Security, on the talk show Sunday making uh, the same, oh, this is all good, this is great. It's both normal, in my opinion, and acceptable. There's uh, any way that you can communi- communicate uh, with people, particularly uh, <laughs> oh, oh, uh, organizations that are maybe not particularly friendly to us is, is a good thing. No, no, come on. I mean, who is he kidding? We're not, first of all, who are we talking about? We're talking about some real estate tycoon 
who has no government experience, has not been appointed to any office, holds no office, been elected to nothing, holding a meeting with a Russian ambassador and a top Russian banker, a secret meeting at Trump Tower to establish a back-channel link to Vladimir Putin using Russian intelligence or communications uh, machines or, or systems. No, that's not routine at all, right? That, so they're equating this with just having good relations with Russia, diplomatic relations with Russia between our Secretary of State, for example, or our ambassador or the President of the United States. Not with just some, you know, pardon me, kid from New York who doesn't know his ass from a hot rock when it comes to foreign policy. By he the might, way. He might be able to make a real estate deal. Fine. Let's say he's a good businessman. But maybe when it comes to government, domestic policy or foreign policy, he knows less than Donald Trump does. And that is a very low bar. While we're talking about all this uh, uh, news coming out of the communications department, there is a little bit of breaking news this morning. This is a Bill Press Show breaking news update. The communications director for the White House, a man by the name of Mike Dubke, Dubke, mm-hmm. he was the guy that came in to help Sean Spicer because Spicer was sort of doing oh, dual yeah, roles. Yeah. Mike Dubke oh, right. has left the White House. He resigned on May 18th and said that he would stay on through the foreign trip to sort of help ensure a smooth transition. But he is gone. He is out. I didn't know he'd resigned. I didn't. That's no, no, this is new. I mean, they kept, it, they kept it quiet. Break. They kept it secret. He submitted his resignation it. on May 18th and told Trump that he would stay on through the uh, the foreign trip. Well, this could be – uh, uh, we'll get back to um, Kushner in just a second, but just a, a quick comment. This could be the beginning of what everybody has been talking about for months, a big White House sh- yeah. staff shakeup. Yeah. Right? Guess who was spotted outside of the White House yesterday? <laughs> Corey Lewandowski. Corey Lewandowski. Okay. Uh, but oh, uh, I'll make a point I've made before. A staff, shaking up the staff at the White House is not going to solve the problem. I can think the, of one major change they're going to have to make. Yeah. The problem is a guy at the top yeah. who undercuts his communications te- people, undercuts his cabinet members, undercuts his press secretary every single day. The problem is Donald Trump. The problem is not Sean Spicer or Hope Hicks or even Kellyanne Conway, or this Dupke guy, whom we never heard from, uh, or Reince Priebus. But they all could go, and we'll still be, and then Donald Trump will um, we'll still be, still we'll be, still be the problem. Uh, so back to Kushner. So we've heard the administration's people uh, come out and, and say, oh, this is all normal, this is normal. You know what? Thank God for John McCain. Thank God there's one Republican who's been around and is not afraid to tell it like it is, even if it happens to be a mem- critical of a member of his own party. Uh, John McCain yesterday on Australian TV saying, no, 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 this is not normal. I know that some administration officials are saying, well, that's standard procedure. I don't think it's standard procedure prior to the inauguration of a president of the United States by someone who is not in an appointed position. I think he is the premier. And most important threat, more so than ISIS. Yep, indeed. That's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. So this is, a, again, a very serious, very serious problem. For the, the White House today is in total damage control uh, because of this Kushner thing. Um, and, again, you've got uh, – you know what? I think th- this is a case of the blind leading the blind, uh, meaning – 
nobody closer to Donald Trump than Jared Kushner, and neither one of them have any government experience. Neither one of them of them have any grasp or any knowledge about domestic policy or foreign policy, uh, and the two of them are leading the country. Uh, and as far as Jared Kushner's alleged smarts, right, this is the guy that recommended uh, to Donald Trump that he fire James Comey. Reince Priebus and others had recommended against it, saying this could really backfire. Uh, and look what happened. Thanks to firing James Comey, the White House not only had a week of the worst publicity of any modern president, perhaps, but also they they got now a special prosecutor investigating the Russian connection, which Donald Trump thought he could put behind him by firing James Comey. So it just had the exact opposite effect. Again, great idea, Jared. Do you have any more good ideas? Maybe, here's a good idea, Jared. Maybe we could uh, create a back channel with the Russians. No. And and the Russians might let us come to their embassy and use their communications equipment so nobody knows what we're doing. Oh, yeah. Jared, any more bright ideas? No. Uh, No. Um, So talk about a staff shakeup. Do you think Trump would ever go so far as to uh, tell Jared Kushner to go back to New York? Hey, Hey, take my daughter and my grandkids and go back to New York, all right? Make make real estate deals. No, it's not going to happen. Anyhow. Next question. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the next question, I guess, is, uh, Peter, is it all over for Tiger Woods? It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It's amazing. It really is amazing. I, I don't know. I still look at Tiger Woods as this, like, young guy, right? Yeah. Which, I, which is we crazy. All, no, we all do. We all do. Right, uh, and he was just such a phenom for so long. And um, boy, oh boy, that mugshot! Yikes! Now, I, I saw our good friend um, Christine Brennan last night on you know on CBS, and she was saying, "Yeah, he'll never come back from this." I don't think so. And look, That's you true. know, why, why would he? Just at this point, I mean, I didn't realize how much money he's still making off of well, ads. He's is making he really? forty-five million dollars a year in sponsors. Now, considering. He's a not a great golfer anymore. That's a lot of money. Like twenty million of that comes from Nike. So, depending on what happens with this DUI, right? So like, he's still a brand. Basically. He's definitely still a brand. Yeah. But that guy's got more money than he needs for the rest of his life at this point. Just like, go, just retire, live on a golf course, get as drunk as you want, and don't just don't drive anywhere. You know, just go home. Uh, I was just going to say, I would suggest that somebody with that much money could afford to have a personal manager whose job would be to drive him around, keep him sober, keep him out of the eyes of the press, and basically um, manage him. I mean, you know, just control him. Yes, there are people that do that. And a lot of celebrities have people like that, and that's why they don't get in trouble. Look, we know the guy that handles that for you very well. The guy that makes sure that your your bar fights stay out of the the news. uh... No, Cyprian does a good job. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Who's watching Cyprian if he's watching you? (laughs) Oh, man. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We told you, a lot of news of the day, yes and indeed. Now, you know, Republicans are already starting to think, man, how close do we get to this Donald Trump as we gear up for re-election next year? Simon Pathé from uh, Roll Call joining us. 
for the next half hour here on the Bill Press Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. That's what we're going to have. We're going to have a lot of strength. We're going to have a lot of peace. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. video bill's commentary the best clips from the show all in one place youtube.com slash the bill press show you bet it is the bill press show here on uh, tuesday may 30 good to have you with us today thanks so much for joining us as we boom out to you from our studio on capitol hill in washington dc just down the street from the united states congress where we're brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, the Honorable Leo Girard. The United Steelworkers is North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. And we salute them, good men and women of the Steelworkers, and thank them for thank them for their support of the uh, program. Uh, yes, indeed, a um, couple more special elections this year, and then. All members of the House gearing up for 2018. A couple of governor's races this year as well. Uh, we wanted to uh, scan the landscape here with Simone Pathé, uh, who covers politics for Roll Call, senior political reporter. Hello, Simone. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good to be back. Thanks for coming in. So um, what happened in Montana? <laughs> Oh, boy, what did happen in Montana? Yeah. Um, quite a lot. So as we know, the Republican succeeded here. He, he eked out a win despite um, body slamming a reporter <laughs> on the eve, of the, eve of the election. Lest we forget about that. Not yeah. a story that any of us saw coming. Um, but not a great surprise that he won here in the end. Um, you know, Democrats were expecting that he, that the Democratic nominee, Rob Quist, would be down by double digits. Um, it ended up being a little bit more narrow than that. Um Still, you know, progressives are saluting this as a victory. If you look at the shift in outcome from the presidential election, this is a district that Donald Trump won by 20 points. So to have it be won by a Republican by single digits is, one could assume, a victory of some sorts. Not um, if you don't win. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> that, I'm with you. but Mr. That, Pessimist over here. Folks oh, looking Mr. for Realist, something to point yeah. to. Where this comes into play is if you take that trend and you apply it to districts that are closer, like Georgia, where there is a lot less of a gap to make up, that's where liberals see some cause for optimism. Right. So Georgia is still... Um, uh, John Ossoff did not win the uh, outright in right. the primary. Right, right. Um, and so now there's the but the runoff. But the odds have shifted really in the runoff once you have all Republicans united, Republicans united right. against the one Democrat right. in a marginal Republican district. Yeah, so you're exactly right. Remember that there were 18 people in the primary in April, which was just insane. Yeah. <laughs> 11 of those candidates were Republicans. So, of course, that vote was going to be splintered and that would benefit John Ossoff. Right. Um, and you're right. The fundamentals mm-hmm. of the district definitely make it a lot more in Republicans' favor in the runoff simply because it has been a Republican district for decades. Um, the combination of Karen Handel, the Republican nominee, not being such a strong candidate and all of the, uh, this outside enthusiasm and money pouring in for Democratic nominee John Ossoff 
definitely makes it a race to watch. Um, We wouldn't even be talking about this race if it weren't for Donald Trump, right? And the fact that he won it by less than two points, that's what sort of put it on the map for Democrats Mm -hmm. in the first Mm -hmm. place. Right. Um, So the extent to which this is a referendum on Trump will be interesting to see as well. And then South Carolina. Yes. The um, Mike uh, McCarthy. This is uh, Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney. Mick. Mick. Yeah. 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 Director of the OMB. Right. Um, So this is a much tougher win for Democrats. Um, and, and probably, honestly, his biggest curse is that the election is the same day as Georgia. So all of the attention, especially oh, regionally, right. is going to be totally sucked up by this nationalized election. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you add Kansas, which we didn't talk about, yeah, where Democrats didn't even compete, that was a special election. So you had Kansas, Mon- Georgia, Montana, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, in three out of four, Democrats are at least taking a shot at it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, particularly progressive seats, see, mm-hmm. that th- these these are seats that they might be able to pick up. Um, but there's another argument that these are such – these are Republican seats that Democrats should not even be attempting to right. win because they're only going to use resources and lose. Um, where do you come down on this? (laughs) Yeah, um, that's an argument you hear from national Democrats here a lot. And I think what's been interesting to see is... And it's a big big split right now. It is, yeah. And actually, I mean, you see it from both sides, too, trying to explain their decisions based on polling and whether it's a district they should be playing in or not. Um, But right, from the national Democratic perspective, they need to gain 24 seats next year to win control of the House. Um, so they would argue, you know, why spend money on a Montana? This is a state Trump by, won by 20 points or a Kansas when we're trying to bank our money for next year. These are not the kind of districts that they have on their target list. They're targeting 79 districts right now. That's a lot of districts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of them are really red. I mean, one of them is an open seat in West Virginia that Trump won by 49 points. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but. You know, the path to the House, the majority of the House, runs more through districts like Georgia, where it's well-educated, it's affluent, it's suburban. Um, Look at some of the districts they're contesting seriously for really the first time in New Jersey. Suburban districts like Rodney Freelinghuysen, he's Mm -hmm. the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, someone who in the past, like, never would have faced a competitive race. But now, given the district that he's in and Trump's continuing volatility... Um, they think that this is a place that they can put on the map. So saving those resources for those kinds of elections is their argument. And whatever happened to the 50-state strategy? <laughs> yeah, it depends which 50 states you're talking about, I think, right? <laughs> um, because right after the election, everybody's right. saying, we got to get back to that 50-state strategy. Right. We're going to compete every and in every state, in every district, we're going to be there. We're going to have good candidates. We're going to put resources there. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in a sense, this is almost a replay of the Hillary-Bernie battle, isn't it? There's definitely some of those dynamics. You're still seeing this continuing divide about, um, you know, identity politics in the party and whether abortion, for example, should be a litmus test for mm-hmm. a Democratic Party, whether they can win in districts with candidates that don't exactly fit the district, particularly if they're trying to pick up seats in the South and in the West, whether they need to recruit um, more veterans, small business people, which they have been doing. The DCCC here in Washington has made veterans a huge priority um, but again, looking for those candidates who are not one size fits all. It's also like kind of a weird 
needle to thread, right? Because Quist in Montana wanted Bernie to come out, but did not want <laughs> Perez. Uh, Perez and the DNC to come out. Right. Which, again, we're sort of finding ourselves back in this argument of whether or not that was smart. Right. You know, would Bert, is Bernie enough to carry some of these candidates, or do you need the power of the DNC, or would that have hurt a guy like Quist in a place like Montana? We don't really know. Yeah, yeah. The same argument was made in Kansas, right? Democrats argued that the only reason that James Thompson, the nominee, was able to get as far as he did was because they didn't come in and because (laughs) he wasn't attached to the National Party. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're always going to be attacked for being too close to Nancy Pelosi, regardless of how far you are. And also, like, the fact that Nancy Pelosi is, is like, back again as the boogie woman, it's, like... Where would Republicans be if they didn't have a woman to beat up on in <laughs> politics? You know what I mean? Like, Nancy Pelosi is hardly the leader of the of the Democratic Party. And it's interesting on the Senate side, you're starting to see Republicans use Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren. in the exact yeah. same role. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, so th- the this year there are, you know, we live here in Washington, D.C., of course, uh, right across the river from Virginia. So mm-hmm. you watch local Washington television, you're going to see a lot of ads mm. For the Democratic primary in Virginia, Tom Perriello, right. uh, former member of Congress, mm-hmm. uh, challenging Ralph Northam, the lieutenant governor, right. who has the endorsement of all the establishment, um, mm-hmm. Tim Kaine, Mark Warner, uh, Terry McAuliffe have all endorsed Northam, and Perriello's kind of running a Bernie Sanders outsider progressive campaign against him. What, what, what's your read on that? And, of course, it looks like Ed Gillespie, who ran for Senate before. Right. Uh, and came close mm-hmm. to Senate, mm-hmm. will be the Republican nominee for governor. Yeah, I think this is yet another example of where the Democratic Party is somewhat split about the direction they want to go to and what identity they want to take, particularly interesting in a state like Virginia, which is so mixed. I mean, it's trending blue, obviously, but even within. Uh- Democratic caucus, you've got much more progressive folks up north. You've got more conservative patches down south. Um, we don't have a lot of elections to watch this year. We've got the specials, of course, but on a state level, all we have is Virginia and, and New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. Um, so it'll be an interesting potential foreshadowing of what could happen down the road. And I guess the question in Virginia for the Democratic Party is um, center or mm-hmm. center left? Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's the question for the whole country, really. What is going to win you the most votes? Um, Whether it's, you know, someone like Sanders, who some Democrats argue would have won the general election had he been toe to toe with Trump because he was speaking the same language of sorts, you know, the same sort of populist, economic centric message. Um, Other Democrats argue that identity politics, whether or not that's something Hillary Clinton strove to be identified with just by virtue of who she was. I think a lot of people think that that sort of reinforced a certain vision of the Democratic Party that turned a lot of voters off. Um, so which one works better? I think it depends on the place. <laughs> we'll see in Virginia how that bears out. But wouldn't you agree that, uh, again, the Democrats didn't have the the best choice of the districts to contest, but at the same time, the Democrats need a win, right? There's nothing like a win. Any That's one true. of them, a win in any one of them. Uh, but it's hard to argue that Trump is an anchor around the <laughs> neck of the Republican Party and the Republicans are in trouble and the American people are, uh, are can't wait to get back, right? Right. Uh, boom, 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 whatever argument without actually winning one. 
That's yeah. what you say about Montana. Yeah, it was closer than 20 points, but right. Gianforte is still going to be sworn in, uh, and reporters in Washington <laughs> are all going to have to get battle gear. You know. I already got mine, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so they need a win. Democrats need a win. We yeah. need a win. Yes and no. I think symbolically, absolutely. And in terms of motivating your base, motivating donors, motivating potential candidates mm-hmm. um, who have already come out in droves to try to run in congressional districts, a win would be huge. Whether a win necessarily portends something else for 2018, that's hard to say. Remember, Democrats got really excited that they won special elections in late 2009, early 2010, that meant nothing in the fall of 2010 when they lost 63 seats. So I think a win is really important for those other factors that I listed. But for the electoral success of the party, not necessarily necessary. I, I can just tell you, um, as the former chair of the California Democratic Party, um, there's nothing more difficult to, than to go to donors mm. and say, we need you to really cough up money because we almost won. That last race. No. If you go to them and say, look, we're on a roll. We won that. You know, we show we can do it. We know how to do it. That's a, that's a, lot, checks. That's a lot better sell, <laughs> yeah. easier sell than saying, well, we lost, but we almost won. We lost, but we uh, had a good time. Or right. <laughs> we lost, but we turned out a lot of people. Whatever. You know, you, yeah. you really are straining to make that argument. I, I think that there are a lot of Democrats who are just sort of – Assuming that they're going to take back the House in 2018, I, I, I've talked. We've talked to a lot of Democrats who are just like, mm-hmm. "Let's just get the House back, and then we could talk impeachment, and then blah blah blah." It's just like, you've got to win. Like the Rob Quist race, I think is a perfect example. It's a hard, hard mm-hmm. race to win, but that was a winnable race, and Democrats are going to have to win some races like that if they want to take back the House. Who knows if that's going to happen? It doesn't look good. All right. So enough about Democrats. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about the other side of the aisle. Um, Page A16 of the New York Times this morning. GOP headline. GOP conundrum. Run with or against Mm -hmm. Trump. And this talks about the special in, in Georgia. In the northern suburbs of Atlanta, where what is likely to be the most expensive house campaign in history is being waged, a band of conservative advocacy groups is grappling with a question that may decide whether the Republican Party keeps its House majority after 2018. Do you run with Donald Trump or against him? It's a question Republicans are pretty familiar with by this point, right? It's something they grappled with uh, yeah. for most of last year, right. fall at least. Um and I think it, again, comes down to a district-by-district district answer, right? There are some districts where you have to run with Donald Trump because he's really popular and the base is still really energized and still really motivated. And everything that we're hearing out in Washington about Russia and scandal and dysfunction, they're not getting that message. And if they are, they probably don't believe it, right? That's what we've seen. Um, other districts, you can't run with Donald Trump. If you remember, um, I guess this was two weeks ago, when the media was saying it was crediting Michigan Representative Justin Mash, who is a member of the House Freedom Caucus, with having been the first Republican to call for impeachment of Donald Trump. And then, well, he said that if 
if the obstruction of justice proved to be true, that would be grounds for an impeachment. Right. But the yeah. significant part of that whole day was that later the spokeswoman for Florida Representative Carlos Corbello said, wait, 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 hold on. Actually, my boss was the first person to call for impeachment. <laughs> so who would have thought we would have a day where Republicans are trying to one up each other? on trying to claim credit for this. Now, he didn't exactly flat out call for yeah, impeachment right. either. But what's important about this is that Curbelo is in a district that Hillary Clinton won hugely. He has to distance himself from the president if he's going to win re-election. He just does based on the district. That is one of Democrats' top targets. So look for more of those kinds of <laughs> positions. Wow. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. And here we thought it was Congressman Green from Texas. Yeah, right? Yeah, Yeah, seriously. Um, But so is it sort of – do they try to uh, have their cake and eat it too in the sense that they um, basically support Trump? But very few are going to come out, Republicans certainly, and say he should be impeached. But maybe they just distance themselves from him on certain issues – Right, right. But that's a lot harder to do when you have a voting record. Um, of course, they haven't voted on a whole lot and probably won't, but health care will certainly be around their necks, whether they like it or not. You've already seen Democrats messaging against Republicans, not just those who voted for the actual bill, but those who voted for it in committee, those who voted for the first iteration that failed, or even those who voted against it simply because they're a member of the Republican conference. So this is something they are not going to get away from anytime soon. Um, But you're right. You're going to see Republicans trying to have it a little bit of both ways, for sure. Right. Uh, To say, well, yeah, I agree with him on this. In the economy, he's been good for jobs. Mm -hmm. He's been good for the market. I don't know how you could say that, uh, frankly. But they may (laughs) try to make that argument. Uh, But I disagree with him on whatever. Right. 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 Uh, The tax cuts for the wealthiest or something like that. Right. Uh, And I wanted to ask you about health care because that – that's one they can't escape, one way or the other, right? They decided they're going to make health care, the repeal of Obamacare, their number one priority. They've already passed a bill in the House. Who knows what's going to happen in the Senate? They'll probably pass some kind of a bill. Donald Trump will sign some kind of a bill. Most likely, that's going to be a centerpiece, right, of the 2018 campaign? Yeah, I don't think it's an issue that's going to go away. Of course, it will go to the Senate. And a lot of these House members are banking on it changing in the Senate. Actually, the same member that I mentioned earlier, Carlos Corbello, he penned this op-ed explaining why he voted for the final bill. And basically, he said, I had enough assurances from senators that they would make it better that I felt okay (laughs) doing it, which is a pretty crazy explanation to vote for something. You're acknowledging that it's bad, but that you hope someone's going to make it better. I think that was, I think a lot of people believe that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that could could be true. Yeah. Well, (laughs) but it's, you know, it shows you don't even have faith in what you voted for. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. It it also, I mean, they're avoiding their own responsibility, which is to pass the best bill they can. Right. (laughs) I mean, they're not doing their job if they, they take that Right. I mean, look at the way this was rushed through the process. You know, this was purely about delivering campaign promises. Even in the messaging you've seen from official Republicans in the days and weeks after it passed, it was all about, we kept our promise. We're giving you better health care. Privately, Republicans will confess that this is an absolute disaster. You know what I thought was interesting was over the weekend, uh, Trump tweeted about health care. And he says... uh, 
I suggest that we add more dollars to health care and make it the best anywhere. Obamacare is dead. The Republicans will do much better. Um, what what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Add more dollars to health care. It's getting close to saying, let's just keep Obamacare. Kind of. I mean, well, yes. The first, <laughs> kind of. The first part of it, you know, putting more money in is what. Democrats have been saying put money money in and and make sure more people are covered and premiums uh, don't go up and whatever and, and lower the cost of prescription drugs kind of fix Obamacare rather than mend it don't end it mm. if you will um, but I don't think that's what Donald Trump intended <laughs> um, w- w- with that with that tweet I don't think so what is the take on uh, you know it's been awfully awfully quiet in the Senate the first. Mm-hmm. The word was, as soon as this House bill gets there, right, it's going to be shot down. But that hasn't happened. They haven't put anything up of their own. What's going on over there? Yeah, you're right. It has been fairly quiet. I think it's mostly just waiting to see what gets passed over. We were all waiting on the CBO score, of course, late last week. Right. um, Waiting to see whether the House would potentially have to vote on this thing again, uh, which I haven't heard is the case. Um, Why would they have to do that? So if it didn't meet um, certain requirements in the CBO score, there was reports, um, which a lot of members disputed or didn't know about, that the House would actually have to vote again on the same health care bill, which would put a lot of Republicans in a pretty precarious position. Oh, yeah, we didn't get it right the first time, so we have to. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that would be a good message. So I I expect to hear a lot more about health care when they come back. Um, but there's still a lot of senators who are really nervous about taking it as is and definitely looking at making some substantial changes. Yeah. And, and by the way, they are on break again this yes, week, correct? they are. Both the House and the Senate? Mm-hmm. What's the excuse this time? <laughs> Memorial Day? <laughs> sure. What the hell? <laughs> well, we, we, we took yesterday off, but we didn't take the whole week off. No, but... They never do. They never just take one day <laughs> off, right? It's always one week or two weeks surrounding it. Right, right. Yeah. Town hall, maybe? No, probably not. Is this just I can't one? think of anything. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? Is this just one week of, of break? Yes, yeah. Right. Um, so what What else uh, uh, that you see? Healthcare is certainly a major issue. Will tax reform, um, you know, that, that's, that's been talked about. right. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of folks think that they need to get health care done first, right, if they're going to have any sort of savings <laughs> to right, allow tax right. reform or tax cuts, whatever you want to spin it, um, to to go forward. Um, but there's not a lot of time between now and August recess. Speaking of breaks, you know, you've got the 4th of July in there, um, summer, condensed weeks. So I think a lot of folks are nervous about having to go home, senators too, and and not really have anything to show for themselves. Well, I was, that, that's what that's what I was leading to. Is at some point it seems to me, um, both for the president and for the Congress, and for certainly for those running for reelection, um, they're going to be asked what they've gotten done, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In this was this 115th Congress, or mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so far, you'd have to say. Nothing. Yeah. Am I missing something? I mean, yeah, the House passed a bill, but that's not 
a bill. Right. It's not. I mean, Republicans can certainly point to um, the White House having rolled back, you know, some regulations. The Congressional Review Act, if you recall, allowed the executive branch and Congress to undo a bunch of these Obama era regulations. So that is certainly red meat for the base. But in terms of a huge legislative victory on any number of these things that they talked about, I mean, remember that health care for seven years was pretty much the platform of the Republican Party in congressional races. Right. That's what they right. ran on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And having to suddenly be on the other side of that to be on the defense is a lot but, more difficult position. Yeah. No, no, it is. But I mean, there's a difference also between undoing things that Obama did and doing anything positive. Right. Doing, putting, moving the ball forward. Right? right. I mean, you can't say that rolling back an Obama regulation is moving the ball forward in any way. I, 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 that's certainly well. I think uh, a lot of Republicans would argue that they would. I mean, I think the only thing to me, the only thing that they've got is Neil Gorsuch. Mm. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. the House can't claim that. No, that, no, <laughs> that's the, a Senate victory. The House can't claim that, and you know, nobody actually but Mitch McConnell can claim right. that. <laughs> so uh, it, it's going to be very dicey. It's a challenge for both. Um, Republicans and Democrats looking at twenty at, at twenty eighteen mm-hmm. again. Democrats got to win, and and Republicans have to come up with something that they can uh, <laughs> that they can defend. So, and that's what makes your job so interesting. See you month at roll call rollcall.com. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. All right, and enjoy your week off. Thanks. We'll be right back <laughs> with the head of the NEA, Lily Eskelson Garcia. Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Will the son-in-law bring down the Trump administration? Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Tuesday, Tuesday, May 30, great to see you today. And we hope you had a a wonderful, wonderful, relaxing Memorial Day weekend. I made the most of it. Took time out yesterday to remember what Memorial Day is all about and to thank uh, the men and women of our armed services today and in the past who have put on the uniform and protected put their lives on the line to protect us and keep us safe. Uh, we welcome you back to the real world here uh, with the news of the day as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, with all the big stories of the day. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jared Kushner in hot water, son-in-law in hot water, over the secret Russian connection that he tried to establish with Moscow. Uh, Donald Trump returning from his European trip accomplishing nothing but pissing everybody off. Angela Merkel saying after uh, one good look at Donald Trump, she uh, advises European leaders uh, that they can't count on the United States anymore. The United States is no longer reliable. 
European leaders are going to have to go it on their own. And sadly, Donald uh, Tiger Woods, rather, ending his career in ignominy and in the drug tank yesterday morning down in Jupiter, Florida. All of that we will bring you up to date on and take your calls at eight. I mean, I'm sorry. No, we will get your comments on Twitter <laughs> at BP show. And boy, that's Man, a throwback. Is that an acid flashback. Well, it sure is. Uh, and we will be joined and talk about education policy and what Donald Trump is trying to do to American schools. Joined by the president of the National Education Association, Lily Eskelson Garcia. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Let the children lead the way here as a group of middle schoolers were in Washington, D.C. to They were from uh, South Orange Middle School in New Jersey, by the way. They were here last week. They were offered the chance to pose with Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. And they declined. Half of the students opted to not go stand with Paul Ryan for the photo. Uh, as one person said, a student by the name of Matthew Malaspina said, it's not just a picture, it's being associated with a person who puts his party before his country. That's, that's, what, that's a third pretty, grader that's, said that? That's pretty woke for a middle schooler. A middle schooler. So schooler, yeah. a, another one uh, said that she, uh, Wendy Weeks, the name of this student, she said that having stand, standing next to Paul Ryan would have given the wrong impression about how she feels about him. She says that if you stand for a photo, it represents that you agree with him and support them, and I don't agree or support him. Whoa. Boy. Another another story of the grand tradition of young children owning Republican politicians. Uh, two things. Number one, poor, poor Paul Ryan. He's like Rodney Dangerfield. He, yeah, right. Not even the kids. He can't get no respect. But it also shows that American schools, I think, are doing a good job. Well, yes, we are. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Hi, Thank Lily, you. Lily Eskelson Garcia from the NEA. Nice to see you. I Thank love you. that story. Isn't, Isn't that, that great? great because, yeah. because it's a story about higher level thinking skills and about um, standing up for something you believe. In. I always get very upset when people say, you know, why can't we teach children values? I couldn't say good morning to my sixth graders without teaching them values of respect of how yeah. you treat people. As the father of a middle schooler, I, I hope that my child is woke enough to know that he should not pose for a photo with Paul Ryan. Yeah. I think my kid <laughs> yeah, would know that. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to go to Philadelphia, one of the things that people like to do is go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You can run up the steps, the Rocky oh, Steps. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there is a statue of the iconic Rocky Balboa down at the bottom. Although, if you're going to go there in the next couple of weeks, it will be closed. They have to rehab the statue. It needs a, a facelift, needs to be fixed up a little bit. So you will not be able to get there for about two weeks. So just know that before you go to Philadelphia. All right. Is this because, uh, I don't know, too many people rubbing? Too many people go up. I mean, everybody wants to go take their photo with it. Yeah, yeah. Climb on it and all that. Well, thanks. I'll change my plans (laughs) because I have about going to Philadelphia (laughs) the next couple of weeks. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Here we go on a Tuesday, Tuesday, May 30, a little bit of breaking news today, too. Good to see you, by the way. Thank you so much for joining us on the for the Bill Press Show. We're coming out to you coast to coast uh, on several different platforms. YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Nationwide on Free Speech TV, 
Joining you on the great WCPT out in Chicagoland, and uh, we're with you on patreon.com slash BP show. Uh, whether you're watching or listening, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Again, a little bit of breaking news uh, that the communications director of the White House, uh, Mike Dubke, he's a man who was brought in uh, to give uh, Sean Spicer a little help when they thought in the beginning Sean Spicer couldn't handle both jobs, communications director and press secretary. Uh, Mike Dubke brought in. He resigned May 18. It was not announced. He agreed to stay on through the uh, president's uh, foreign trip. Uh, but the White House announced this morning that his resignation has been accepted and he is gone. Could be the beginning maybe of uh, a much rumored shakeup of uh, senior staff at the White House. We'll find out what else we might hear today on that. But let's get to the subject of this hour, always important uh, education, more important than ever, and Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos maybe not the best friends that American public schools have had uh, in the White House and the Cabinet. Lily Escoso-Garcia, good friend of ours, president of the National Education Association, kind enough to join us in studio. Nice to see you. It's Lily. where all the cool people come. <laughs> yeah, come on. I want to be one of the cool kids. So tell us about <laughs> Betsy DeVos. Okay. We yeah. can do that. Um, all right. So a woman who, before she became Secretary of Education, as far as we know, had never, literally never stepped foot into inside a public school. Uh, the uh, experience mm-hmm. that she, yeah, you just kind of like shake that one off. Uh, the experience that she did have with public schools in Michigan was using the muscle of her billions of dollars to defund public schools in some of our most poorest challenged communities. We're talking like in inner city Detroit, but we're also talking in little rural areas where, uh, uh, you know, the poorest of the poor kids um, live and uh, take all of the public school dollars and use it to fund a series of um, for-profit charter schools, uh, Mm -hmm. worked like crazy to get voucher schools. And, of course, these are funding schools that can carefully select the students they choose. Um, And a lot of folks don't know the history of of vouchers. But the first time that public school vouchers came up was uh, in after Brown versus the board when they were talking about segregated schools. And a lot of communities went, well, how can we keep our tax dollars and still say we don't want those kids? And uh, we'll just we'll just fund little white academies uh, and the and the courts turned those things down now they've popped up um, and so some of them may be segregated by race by religion but also and this is the part where it's getting energy businesses are getting involved in their their starting for-profit school businesses can anyone say Trump University this yeah, is what right. we're this is what we're talking about and this is her agenda and uh, she and, uh, and that Donald totally Trump. undermines public schools right um, it uh, more than I undermines mean, them it, it it absolutely destroys them it, it is a corrupting influence and you look at the budget that they've just proposed the budget that cuts special education the budget that cuts after school programs arts programs children's health Special Olympics, Head Start, all of the things that are actually working, and you're going to cut that, and where are you going to put that money? In vouchers, in private Mm. school vouchers. Um, And Betsy DeVos and her family have 
um, profited from these for-profit charter schools in Michigan. Do they have their own schools, or what do they have? They no, they 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 they, uh, they invest right. They invest in these uh, Mm for-profit businesses, and in her own words, she uh, she called people who believe in public schools, people like you and people like me. Flat earthers, the irony drips, <laughs> you know, yeah. but we're yeah. flat earthers because we don't see the future is in. And this is these are her words, the education industry. Now, if that doesn't make you just like kind of curl up and, you know, yeah. some, uh, that, that, that shouldn't make anybody feel good. No, that phrase, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really, I mean, talk about a contradiction in terms, but you certainly do not think of public schools as an industry. Industry. Well, right? on top of that, Different rules apply. It, totally. And, and uh, I have... Um, talk about values. Uh, I, I'm still waiting to hear from uh, Betsy DeVos on a... Uh, she invited me to come and meet with her, and I um, sent her a letter and I said, I need to hear the answers to the questions you didn't answer at your Senate hearing. Will you hold those private uh, entities that get public dollars accountable, transparent, in the same way that public schools are transparent in how they have to spend their dollars? Will you not privatize things like special ed, things like our Title I funds that give special services to the poor, poorest children? And will you protect the civil rights of our LGBT kids, our uh, children of color? Uh, will you protect the rights of girls to have mm. the same opportunities as boys? All of these are housed in the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Ed. It's so far. I'm still down, waiting for that answer. It's by the so way. far down the list of priorities for oh. them, though, and 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 like I know that that sounds like I might be projecting, but they're they're pretty much out in front of it. They say that it's not a priority for them. Uh, it's not that exactly. they're leading with their actions; they're just saying ahead of time. Well, they don't care about this. You're stuff. right. And the way that they're like dismissing it is, well, that should be a local decision on yeah. whether or not. African-American children have the right to the same opportunities as white children. No, no, we Mm -hmm. already, you know, that was why the Department of Education uh, existed. That was why we have a civil rights department uh, in the Department of Education. And it was because they're, depending on where you lived, your kids might not get the right to the same access and opportunity. So you've not, you've not met with her. Oh, no. Yeah. No. Okay. No. <laughs> All right. I, I need to hear those answers. And by the way, we already know those answers. Yeah. You right. know, it was Maya Angelou that said, "When people tell you who they are, why wouldn't you believe them?" <laughs> we, I've, I've had people who've looked at this budget and they went, well, "You know, that's a negotiating thing. He doesn't really mean it. She doesn't really mean it. They're not really going to cut that." I believe them. They said, "This is not important. This is not what we're going to do." We will not protect these children. We won't protect their funding. We won't protect their rights against discrimination. I believe them. Well, how can they? So, what is? Do you know the percentage cut for education? What is? Oh, ten billion dollars. Ten really? of, billion dollars. And the only place they increased was a new program on privatization. A new program on vouchers. So, indeed, they're taking money from 
They're the taking money that... from everything that works to fund something that doesn't work. That's it... very simply put, and that yeah. makes perfect yeah. sense. Like, doesn't they... make sense, but it, <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't make... When you put it that way, it but may, it explains it exactly the what they're doing, yeah. right? Yeah. Because if what you need to do is make sure that public schools fail, because if a, a successful public school uh, means that people won't be looking for privatized alternatives, so you make sure. How do we take away everything that works? Class size is in here so that some of the most challenged districts can hire more teachers, hire counselors, hire um, people who work with children. And so let's get rid of all of that. Let's make these barren places without the arts, without sports, without after school programs. You know, those after school programs, that sounds like kind of like a nice thing. Those after school programs in a lot of these communities is the anti gang program. It's we're going to give those kids. Kids, um, you know, intramural basketball. We're going to give those kids some place where they can go after school and do mm-hmm. something healthy. Yeah. Their parents don't have the money to put them in Little League. If they don't get it at school, they don't get it. And I think there are people now saying, how do we pull mm-hmm. out the funding for everything that that is fun and successful and makes kids like going to school and try a little harder? Because the worse we off those public school kids are, the more their parents will want. Uh, now, tell me more about, you know, those vouchers. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about those private businesses that, that promised stuff to my kids. A few years ago, um, during the Clinton administration, um, I had uh, the joy, actually, of working with the Department of Education. Secretary Riley was there at the time. I love Ooh, him. Wonderful guy. <laughs> he wonderful. is a wonderful Former guy. Former governor of South Carolina. Uh, and his big thing was the arts in mm. education. And uh, so I emceed Cut. several pro- Cut. programs around the country. <laughs> and, I mean, he was just passionate about yeah. that, what value they brought to the kids in so many dimensions. I was going to say, where are they now? Where well, and, and, and the arts program exist? is one of the ones that was cut. Now, remember, I don't ever want Congress to be our federal school you know, a board that that's ridiculous. the The Department of Education was um, actually became a cabinet position under Jimmy Carter. So it's not all mm. that that long a history. But even under it, it started out uh, as a just a department when um, President Johnson said. We're looking at discrimination. We're looking at racism. We're looking at kids that are treated radically different in their access and opportunity to education programs. We are going to help. The federal government is going to come and help. Uh, We can't um, completely um, eliminate uh, the disparities, but we're going to help those children who live in poverty, who have disabilities, who have challenges, and we can help. And uh, but one of the things that they said, but we can insist because it is the law Mm. that children are not discriminated against. So when you have not just the uh, the programs that were actually helping to lift up some kids that didn't have access to the arts programs, to after school programs, they cut Special Olympics, they cut Head Start, they cut things that were um, 
absolutely helping children. And, and haven't there been, I mean, there have been a lot of studies at Head Start. I mean, kids who go through a Head Start program do so much better. They than- they do. And, you know, there's, uh, you, you can read a lot of uh, different statistics. Uh, and, and some folks will say, well, we followed some of these kids in Head Start. And they were really, you know, they had caught up as, uh, you know, kindergarten, first grade third graders. Uh, after you put them then in overcrowded classrooms with underfunded programs for, you know, five right. or six or seven years, and they're going, oh, and look, all the benefits disappeared. No, no, no. We know what works. We know that when children are surrounded by talented people who care about their lives and want school to be interesting and want to open those little minds to, uh, to, to being curious, about you know asking good questions you got a jelly bean in my class for a good answer you got two jelly beans for a good question and you know so you you get those kids that are going i get it i'm excited i want to know more i want to read another book um We've moved out of this test and punish, no child left untested era of, you know, uh, uh, horrible things um, uh, going on with kids. Uh, you know, that all they need is to get two more points on a standardized test. Um, and we look at those things like after school programs and the arts programs and the science programs. Um, and those are the things that got on the chopping block. Oh, well, I, I, I just have to say I had a. Uh, uh, Carol and I, my wife, had a fun experience um, a couple of weeks ago of visiting. We have two, um, five grandchildren, but two of them are twins, first graders, mm. little public school out in West Marin, California, and uh, visiting their classroom. That uh, it was a after-school program day mm-hmm. where all the parent, the parents came and everything. Those kids were so proud of the work that That's they had it. done. They had little challenges to do in the classroom and. Find all this stuff, you know, on this little chart to fill. It was just so exciting to watch. It, it them. is. And they were so into it. They were so proud of their work. And, Those of us who have experienced you know, that, and I mean, I I taught kindergarten through sixth grade. I taught at homeless shelter for three years. Uh, I I've taught kids in the suburbs. I've taught gifted and talented uh, kids in the you know summer school. Uh, I've I've done it all, and um, I know what I need to do to get those kids like saying, I need more, give me more, mm. give me more. Um, mm. And, and it's, a, it's a little minor miracle um, that we'd perform every single day with yeah. those kids. And the, the, what, the least that we're asking from a politician is please don't hurt our children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can't help, yeah. would you just like step aside? <laughs> just to, you know, if you can't help, then just don't hurt them. This hurts them. It must be difficult. I mean, if you look at the public school system, like, you know, I'd like to ask you what, in terms of what grade that you would give our public schools today nationwide, but that may be impossible because there's such a vast difference, isn't there, between inner city schools, rural schools, suburban schools, You know, people are going to think I paid you to ask that question because that is like my favorite question in the world. And here's the answer. Well, first of all, for the record, we did not talk (laughs) before this morning's program. So I'm just going, wow, if I had said, be sure and ask me this question. Here's the thing. I talk to a lot of reporters and some of them are, you know, like political reporters. They're not education reporters. Um, And so when they say, you know, so what's the answer? What's wrong with choices? What's wrong with giving, you know, value? or whatever. Here's the thing. We know what works, and nobody wants to do this. Why wouldn't we 
any scientist would do this. Why wouldn't we go to our best public school where kids are graduating, where they're going on to Harvard? We have some of the best public schools in the world. And um, studies show that when you have very low poverty in a school and you've got those hover parents, you've got those mm-hmm. kids that go, my kid's going to get an AP chemistry and where's the library and where's the technology? So here's what we do. We figure out where the best public schools are. Everyone knows where they are in your state. Uh, I'm from Utah. You go to Park City. If you've mm-hmm. got a ski resort in your backyard, you've got some pretty fabulous <laughs> schools. Yeah. Um, and just I'm telling you, it would cost $3.50 to get yourself a clipboard, a piece of paper, and a pencil, and just start writing down what they've got. They've got a chemistry lab. They've got technology. They've got an international baccalaureate mm-hmm. program. They've got gifted programs and counselors and you name it. They've got a school nurse. They've got a librarian. They also have local tax revenue that supports that. And here's Is the that thing. Right? When you... Ta- Forget about how you're funding that school. Say, this is a successful school. This is the staff and the stuff they put in that school. And what do you know? Kids are thriving. Here's another thing those schools have. They've got kids that never missed a meal. I had kids Mm. that came to school hungry. So I can't go home and cook breakfast for them, but I can give them a breakfast program. Mm-hmm. I can say, what am I going to do to help those kids when they have a sore throat? I could use a school nurse. All right, so what can you replicate in the best schools? Now, what they have done is they've said, well, we can't afford to do that, but you can. You afforded it for those kids in that zip code. Those kids got everything. What you're saying is we have a system that funds our schools so that we don't. We choose not to, by design, do it for every child. So the mantra that all of us that believe in true democracy, meaning you get what you need when you're a little kid. You get that public school. You need to say every public school looks like our best public school. Sure. And that, by the way, is the choice of the most affluent parents in America. Eighty percent of the top earning families in America send their children to their neighborhood fabulous public school. Why is that the only choice that children in poverty and their families don't get? Why is that the only choice Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump don't want to talk about? How do you get a fabulous school that your kids can walk to in their neighborhood? Right. And can we afford that? We absolutely can afford that. Look at what um, and, – and did I say it was free? No. Um, but that investment – will come back to us a thousand times over. It's not only a smart thing to do, it's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. So if you're going to ask yourself, can we afford to be fair and just with all children, that answer better be, oh, hell yes. (laughs) The the one thing that as a former teacher, uh, two years, but I I, I must admit, I, I taught in a private school because I was a seminarian at the time, so I was teaching high school and a Catholic (laughs) school. But I loved, I loved my experience in the classroom. And the one thing I know from that experience, particularly like in San Francisco, the lay teachers there, um, they were having a hard time raising their family on on Mm -hmm. on a teacher's salary. I mean, 
are people still coming into teaching, giving that? Well, it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, it, tough, it, tough isn't even no, you know, right. a, a strong enough word. I remember, uh, because it, it, you it, still need to take vows of poverty and obedience to be a, a public school teacher. Yeah, <laughs> and well, probably yeah. a Catholic school well, teacher too. Well, that's not fair. Um, right. But you, you know, so there is still yeah uh, the you know the nun uh, model here that we're working with. But here's here's something um, else. I started. Uh, my, I got my first teaching job in nineteen. 19- 80 when I was 12. Uh, and, um, and I remember I made, as a Utah teacher that year, $11,000 a year. That was, I will never forget getting that. And I was, I was like on, uh, yeah. I was on yeah. cloud nine going, wow, I make almost $1,000 a month. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, but, but, oh yeah, we lived in somebody's basement apartment and, uh, you know, we, we lived yeah. on a shoestring. Uh, but um, now what we are up is it getting, against. Is it getting better no, today? No. no. What we're up is against now is today? fewer parents are encouraging their children to go into education. And here's why. Because it has become so expensive um, to go to college that they're saying you won't be able to pay off your student loan yeah. if you're a teacher, yeah. if you're a social worker, mm. uh, if you're in public service. Sure. So let's go back to Betsy's budget. It cuts Pell Grants. It cuts work study. It cuts student loans. Mm. It cuts all the things that made it possible for me to go to college. I was the first one in my family to go to college. My dad never graduated from high school. Um, they're, they're, uh, my parents, you know, military family, six kids, all their kids were going to graduate from high school. That was, that was their lofty ambition mm-hmm. for us. So I was 20 years old working in a Head Start program as a teacher's assistant when a kindergarten teacher said, Lily, you're really good with kids. You should go to college and be a teacher. And I'd been married for three years. I got married out of high school. I had a six-month-old little boy. And um, I had I qualified for every low income, everything, mm-hmm. Pell Grants. I got some scholarships. I took out a student loan. I did work study. And those programs helped me become a teacher. Sure. I paid yeah. it all back. I think that was an investment in me. Now it's if your parents aren't wealthy enough to have saved up tens of thousands of dollars for your education right, to right. pay cash, you're out of luck. You know, was it Jimmy Carter maybe who said that our best national defense are our public schools? I I adore Jimmy Carter. You know, I one of he our said that, but I mean, it's it, so true, it, isn't it, it? You know, he There's, thought it because he it was under Jimmy Carter that we got our first Secretary of Education. It became a cabinet level important enough, um, you know, department that it got a cabinet level uh, uh, slot uh, under his watch. Um, and so more and more, we don't have a national system of education. I'm not promoting a national system of education. I don't want Congress to be our national school board. Still local control. But to say that every child, no matter where you live, should be protected. And we know that certain states have not protected um, all of our children. We know states right now that are discriminating against our transgendered students, Mm, using them for political purposes. And so um, we want a federal presence that protects our most vulnerable children. 
Lily Eskelson Garcia is the president of the National Education Association. You see why she's got the job and what a great job she is doing. Uh, keep up the good fight. Um, and thank you so much for thank coming you in for today. Thank you so, school children. Listen, nothing, nothing more important. Um, and uh, so you've got to be out in front. And you are in so many ways. You can follow all the good work and join in the good work of the NEA at nea.org. Ray Locker from USA Today joins us in the next half hour. Thanks, Lily. We'll see you again soon. It's time for America to get up. It's time to regain our sense of unity and purpose and remember who we are. With all the brain power and energy I see in front of me, I know that nothing and no one in this world. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Okay, on a Tuesday, May 30, how about it? It is the Bill Press Show. You are part of it, and we appreciate your being there as we uh, look at you from our studio on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., joining you everywhere in this great land of ours, whether you're watching on YouTube, YouTube youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show or in Free Speech TV, joining us uh, on the radio out in uh, Chicago on WCPT. However you are joining us on iTunes, um, it's good to have you with us. Uh, And we have a lot to talk about. There's a little breaking news this morning. Uh, Ray Locker will be joining us uh, any moment here now from USA Today. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, there have been rumors uh, for weeks, actually, uh, about a shakeup at the White House. It was at one time Steve Bannon who was in trouble, or uh, it was Steve Miller who was in trouble, or Reince Priebus who was in trouble, or Sean Spicer who was in trouble. Who knows? Uh, Coming back from Europe, the word was uh, that Donald Trump was so unhappy with all the bad news about the Russian connection and the fact that this story would just not go away. Uh, that in addition to addition to attacking the media, which he took up again as soon as he got back on Twitter, uh, he was going to just uh, throw out the whole bunch of his communications staff and start from afresh. Apparently, that is what his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has been proposing. Well, uh, this morning, we got the first sign of a possible shakeup in the news that communications director Mike Dubke, who is not a high-profile person around the White House. No, not at all. I've never seen him. I wouldn't know what he looks like uh, if I saw him on the street. Uh, We never saw him in the briefing room ever. Um, But he was the one who was brought in when Sean Spicer had a little rocky start, and Sean Spicer was wearing two hats, communications director and press secretary, and they said, no, we need to let Sean focus on the press briefings, and we'll have Mike Dubke and his communications director Mike Dubke has resigned. He is out as communication. He resigned, wasn't fired. Maybe the first sign of a big, uh, bigger staff shakeup. Who knows? Probably Ray Locker is the one who knows. I don't know. Oh, there I he know is. all. Here I am. Hello, Ray Locker <laughs> here you. from USA Today. <laughs> nice well, to see you, Ray. Thanks great for to be here. In. Thanks, Metro, for getting me here. <laughs> 
You know, Metro will get you there. May not be on time, but it'll always get you there. Uh, do we know anything more, Peter, since this news broke uh, earlier today? No, only that Politico did talk to him this morning uh, when he was on his way into the White House. So he's still going to the White House. He's still working. He uh, submitted his resignation on May 18th. Trump accepted it immediately, but he said, I'd like to stay on through the foreign trip and ensure that there's a smooth transition. So he he's still going to the White House as of now. They didn't say when his last day with it was, and they haven't talked about a successor. Um, and you should also add that there was a note this morning that said they wanted him, a communications director, to report to Spicer. Yeah. So, you know, I think those that might explain the personal reasons yeah. for Mike uh, leaving. So what, how do you read this, Ray? Is this the beginning of uh, more to, more shoes to fall? Or Oh, I think this solves everything, right? Oh, I yeah. Mean, obviously, yeah. it was Mike Dubke's problem. Look, uh, the, the, the press shop has been running so well. I don't know what they're going to do once he leaves. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's part of a larger exodus. Um, I mean, this place has been going through convulsions since January 20th. And the idea that they brought him in to ride herd on Spicer and then wanted him to report to Spicer. Yeah. Uh, most organizations don't do that. And I think so many people now are kind of in the habit of saying Trump is crazy or this has never happened before. And a lot of times that's hyperbole, but in most cases it hasn't happened before. It hasn't happened in our recent memory. Um, and so. When it happens, like this thing today, you're like, what was that all about? The Europe trip, same kind of deal. So, um, but when you look, pardon me, if you look at the communications shop, um, Sean Spicer's, uh, he's made his share of mistakes. Right. Um, uh, But isn't the real problem with communications the fact that Donald Trump keeps undercutting his communications team? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I think we've all worked for people who are mercurial and kind of erratic. We know how tough that can be. And this is a great example of that. I mean, you had in the case of the Comey firing where they made sessions and Rod Rosenstein say that they did it this way. Even Mike Pence said it. And then the next day, Trump says, no, I did it myself. Right. And Um, I would have done it anyway. Absolutely. I I didn't like him. He's a showboat and all that. Yeah. Um, what was the other thing where he had H.R. McMaster come out and say, well, this didn't happen? And, well, yeah, it did happen. Trump that, said it again. That was the sharing of the Russian intelligence. Right. He said, I, McMaster said, I was in the meeting. It didn't happen. And then Trump the next morning said, I have a right to tell him anything I want. want. Yeah. Right. And here's what I told him. And here's what I told him. Right. Like, oh, my God. Come on, man. Um, and so it diminishes the credibility of all the people who carry his messages. And if you watch the briefings, you know, as I do, you can tell nobody there believes him, whoever the messenger is that day. And they I think they many of them sympathize with, you know, whether it's Sean Spicer or Sarah Huckabee Sanders or anybody else, knowing that one, they chose to be in that job. But two, they're working for somebody who makes them do a lot of things they would prefer not to do. Right. No, I have to tell you, I have gone from scornful of Sean Spicer to feeling sorry for Sean Spicer because he comes out there every day and you can tell he knows that Donald Trump is watching. Right. And he says stuff that he just doesn't believe. Oh, yeah. And he also knows that we don't believe it. In fact, you know, uh, often the the press corps was a laugh out loud at something he says because it's so unbelievable, so outrageous. It makes it hard to do your job because you know that you don't really take these people seriously. You know, you're trying to. Um, and so you kind of lose your edge at times because it becomes a joke. Mm. 
Uh, overall, um, Donald Trump comes back from the nine his first trip, which was a big one. We, mm-hmm. We've talked before. Usually, presidents take like a little test trip. Maybe they go to Mexico and back in one right. day, or Canada and back in one day. He went off in nine days in five countries. Overall, what was accomplished? Um, you know, they sold a lot of weapons to Saudi Arabia, or they secured a commitment to do that. Uh, that's a lot of money, $110 billion. Those will pay for a lot of jobs for people making munitions, aircraft, etc., for a long time. So that's a net positive. Beyond that, you know, he made Israel feel better, although in the aftermath of his time there, people are saying things about, you know, what happened with you know, Netanyahu or Abbas. I mean, obviously saying, oh, I didn't get the information. I never said the word Israel about the intelligence I gave to the Russians in the middle when he's sitting there next to Netanyahu. Yeah. yeah. Not a good thing. Um, the NATO summit, not so great. The G7, the same, not so great. Um, you know, they got to see him in action. I don't know what they thought of him. But I, I don't think, think we do know what they thought yeah. of him uh, <laughs> when we heard from Angela Merkel yesterday, whose speech in Berlin saying, in effect, uh, look, let's just face reality. We've seen him up close. Mm-hmm. We've heard his message. We can't count on the United States anymore. Right. We can't rely on them. We're going to have to um, we're going to be on our own, which was yeah. sort of a, almost a grown up message, but also pretty sad in the sense that this is a relationship, a partnership that's lasted for what, 70-plus years? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, for Donald Trump, basically, he's saying it's all over. Well, and then he tweeted this morning about Germany's massive trade deficit with the United States and how they're not paying enough for NATO. I mean, even though most of our bases are in Germany, have been for years, uh, is an indication of how things went. She obviously doesn't care for him. <laughs> By the and, way, that's another that's another example of where Spicer came out and, and essentially lied to the press because <clears throat> this was all about what Trump had said to Germany to Merkel about the the cars in America, mm-hmm. and Spicer said, "No, no, no, that never happened. That never happened. That, that, that he doesn't feel that way." And now Trump with this tweet is pretty right. clear that he does feel that way. He, um, yes, <laughs> yeah, Sean. he totally feels that way. And sure. I mean, it's. It's dangerous in some ways because we have some major German companies in the United States. South Carolina, where Nikki Haley is from, big BMW plant there. Um, in Alabama, Alabama, home of Jeff Sessions, they have a big Mercedes plant in Tuscaloosa. Yep. You know, that those governors, you know, in charge at the time when those plants came there, worked hard to get them, worked hard with the German government. Um, and those companies, and now they, I don't think those plants are going to go anywhere, but that relationship is being tested. And back to, to um, needling NATO and, in, in fact, I think insulting the, the leaders of NATO and, um, and refu- did not failing to reaffirm Article 5, which is a, an attack on one country, right. is an attack on all of us. Uh, and maybe I wonder if Trump even recognizes. Um, so the war in Afghanistan. NATO troops, those NATO countries have had their men and women on the line, their troops on the line for 16 years alongside of the United States based on a terrorist attack against the United States of America. That's right. And then he goes and tells them that they're not doing the job. Right. Yeah. I mean, no wonder they'd be pissed off at that, right? Oh, of course they would be. And, I mean, this is a a guy who, during the Obama administration, said, oh, we're losing our image abroad. Nobody takes us seriously. Nobody likes us. We're, you know, letting down our allies. 
these are the best allies we have. Sometimes they do things we don't like. Um, sometimes they seem, you know, ungrateful for the help we've provided as a country. But they're the best allies we have. We share common democracies, with a few exceptions. Yeah, um, right. And, uh, you know, we they're supposed to have our backs and we're supposed to have theirs. And to say that you don't really is not a good thing. Mm. And remember the last time I, Germany went, it al- went alone. Uh, yeah, let's not remember <laughs> yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Ray Locker is not only the enterprise editor for uh, USA Today, uh, but also the author of Nixon's Gamble. Now, when you come back from Europe and you find out that your son-in-law is going to be testified, your, your closest Oval Office advisor mm-hmm. is going to be testifying in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee this is so Nixonian, isn't it? Well, not even Nixon hired his son-in-law. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but you got your inner office, your inner Oval Office people up on the Hill testifying about possible collusion oh, inside yeah. the administration. Um, no, that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's uh, it's terrible. And it does bring up many parallels with the Nixon administration, top aides before you know, various committees. Yeah. I mean, with Nixon, it wasn't just the Watergate committee. It was an appropriation subcommittee getting a lot of CIA machinations. It was a Senate Armed Services Committee. It was multiple. And here we got Senate Intel, House Intel, um, Senate Judiciary. You've got a special prosecutor, as we did during Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got people leading investigations who are getting fired, as we had during Nixon. So, yeah, the parallels are numerous. Uh, in fact, Jamie, if we can... Uh, so um, Hillary Clinton was uh, gave her uh, commencement address at Wellesley mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, over the weekend, and she she reflected on that that she knows what students might be feeling these days because she felt that way when she was in college. Here she is. We were furious about the past presidential election <laughs> of a man whose presidency would eventually end in disgrace with his impeachment for obstruction of justice. <laughs> Another throwback yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the Nixon thing. Um, with, with Kushner, uh, what the Post and the New York Times have mm-hmm. reported uh, is that uh, he had this meeting in December uh, 2016 at the request of the Russian ambassador, with the Russian ambassador and a top banker who's very close to Putin, mm-hmm. a bank which by the way, was under sanctions by the United States, to discuss setting up a secret back channel with Russia using communications equipment in the Russian embassy. And the White House response, the White House defense is, oh, this is a normal procedure. It is not. Yes, there have been back channels throughout history, including during the Nixon administration. Henry Kissinger ran one with the Russian ambassador. Henry Kissinger was different than yes, Jared Kushner, he was. wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he had a little more, uh, uh, you know, uh, credentials. Jared Kushner, you're no Henry Kissinger. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, there have been back channels, but not using the Russian stuff, not going to the Russian embassy and using their secret stuff. I mean— Think about it. Everything that you say is going to be recorded. It would be like if if uh, oh, yes. Sergei Kislyak went to the CIA headquarters and sat yeah, in a room right. and talked to, you know, whoever our intel people were at the time, and we recorded all of it. I mean, 
We don't know what Kushner might have said in a back channel meeting if one happened, but it would have been recorded and would have been material that they could have used to blackmail us because maybe since he doesn't really have any experience doing this, he would say something imprudent and that would get us in trouble, get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And uh, I'm sure you heard John McCain and his interview with uh, Australian television just so that everybody can be uh, be up to date here to to this. Uh, McMaster and General Kelly and others coming out and saying that this is just everybody, everybody does this. John McCain uh, dis- disagreeing with that yesterday. We can. Um, here he is. I know that some administration officials are saying, well, that's standard procedure. I don't think it's standard procedure prior to the inauguration of a president of the United States by someone who is not in an appointed position. I think he is the premier. And most important threat, more so than ISIS. Which is a stunning yeah. statement. But, yeah, that's the idea. I mean, this is Jared Kushner at the time. Hadn't been appointed to anything, elected to anything. He's just out. a guy. Yeah. You yeah. know, just a real estate developer who happens to be married to the president-elect's daughter. What are the chances that Jared Kushner did this on his own with no – that Donald Trump knew nothing about it? Uh, I'd say less than 50%, but I wouldn't rule it out. Mm-hmm. You know, we see a lot of times where you think, well, he might want me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Uh, I think there's a pretty good chance that he was doing it after having talked to his father-in-law. Yeah. That reminds me a little of the Chris Christie and the bridge I was case. about. I was yeah. just about to say <laughs> no, that's the same know, thing. That's what they said that Chris Christie insisted. He knew nothing about this at all. Oh, well, I mean, let's go back to Nixon. He didn't know about the Watergate break-in before it happened. People were doing it for multiple reasons, you know, and Mm. they wanted to do things to ingratiate themselves to the president. I mean, when he found out about it, of course, he covered it up. But he also was like, what the hell? You know, in other words, it's not the crime. It's the cover up. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because he's not my cup of tea, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) But but so I guess maybe the bottom line is that that he may have Trump may have thought that he put this Russian connection behind him. With this foreign trip, he didn't, did he? Oh no! And this is not going to go away anytime soon. It's not going away anytime soon. I mean, it. You look at Watergate; they appointed a special prosecutor in May of 1973. Nixon resigned in August of 1974, mm. um, and really not because of what the special prosecutor did, but because of things that bubbled up during that investigation. Primarily, the revelation that Nixon had taped himself, and once you got those tapes, you could see. I mean, hear and read what he had done. Mm-hmm. And that destabilized the support so much that he had to resign. Um, you know, it's possible that that could happen with Trump, too. Right. Did he tape himself? He is, has implied that he ha- he does. So if those were to ever come out, maybe, you know, there's something on there. Are we going to hear from James Comey again? Oh, yeah. He's going to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, I think those details are still being worked out. And I think that testimony will be fascinating. And apparently, at least it's been reported, I think you've reported it too, that um, Kushner was, uh, was one, of the, one of the strongest propon- proponents of firing right. Comey. It really worked out well, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Well, he thought <laughs> the Democrats weren't happy with Comey because of what happened with Clinton, so, so they wouldn't have a problem. No, those people have moved on. Trump is now being investigated by Comey. Hillary Clinton's out of the picture. Everybody's unhappy about it, but they've moved on. And now Comey is investigating Trump. When you fire Comey, 
all you know everything is forgotten yeah everybody's yeah. on you know on the same page uh, especially now. when you fire comey and admittedly do it because of that russian thing right as, the, as yeah Trump you're like come on man you know i go to work every day i try to give the president the benefit of the doubt and he makes it really hard because <laughs> he keeps doing things like that and so it undermines his credibility and you know it makes it difficult to report on other things that he's doing as president of the United States and you know that's important for all of us because he still his administration still does things and we need to talk to people to say why are you doing this to write thoughtful decent stories but this instability makes it hard to do that. So his response is to attack the media, all of us, as fake news. Obviously, right. Anytime you see anything that just was sources, then it's fake news. They do stuff anonymously every day, um, senior administration official. And sometimes that person may be the same one who's doing the other leaking. So no one believes that. No one in the White House press corps takes that seriously. How do you explain um, or, or, that the the Trump base? I mean, it, you know, Trump maybe the truest thing he ever said is he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and mm-hmm. his base would still stick right. with him. Uh, it, it it seems to be true. There's nothing that will shake the, his base. Well, I, I, they're eroding somewhat. Uh, there's some people who like Trump because. He sticks it to people, you know, they don't like liberals, people who think they know better, um, people who live, you know, here and live our lifestyles, you know, and they don't think that we care about people in those places. And a lot of times they're right. We don't care about them. And that's a shame. So if people in the media, people on the left are saying things about Trump, well, they just take that for granted. Oh, you don't just like yeah, him. Right. Just like some of the people would say crazy things about Obama. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe maybe somebody was saying something crazy about him, made a good point, but that gets discounted because, you know what, I just don't like you. I don't like your kind of people. And so I think there's a lot of that. People talk past each other, and it's hard to get find a kind of a common humanity sometimes. Does Donald Trump last four years? <sighs> you know... It seems really hard to imagine that he will. I don't know what it is that makes him leave office. You know, maybe it's a terrible midterm. Maybe he gets impeached. I don't know what he would be impeached for right now because there's a lot of smoke. I don't see the fire yet. Um, But, wow, you know, I think for a lot of people, whether you like them or not, imagining four years of this is really tough. I don't know anybody who covers this president who isn't just wiped out. You know, we <laughs> no. we thought, oh my God, November eighth, it's going to be so great. It'll be over, and we're tired of this. And oh, here we go again, and it's every day, and it starts at six in the morning, and it goes to whenever you go to bed. I, I, I was just saying this earlier off air. Like I do, kind of feel like the system will start to break down eventually. And by the system, I mean this industry that's been built around by Donald Trump equals ratings. Mm-hmm. And I think people – I mean, there was a, such a thing as Trump fatigue. I think people are tired of it a little bit. I think that reporters are exhausted. News consumers are exhausted. And at some point, people are just going to start going, you know what? Just shut up already. Right. Just, just like we elected you to be president and we elected you to be a different kind of president, but not to act like a total animal. 
Well, I think you see it in any kind of crisis. You know, uh, certainly the Clinton impeachment thing was the same kind of deal where you had, you know, a lot of online media like you have now, cable news, which you didn't have during Nixon. Yeah. And whether you like Clinton or not, you were tired of it. I mean, people who like Clinton were like, make this go away. And I think that's what contributed to why she lost last year is that there's this general fatigue about all the drama. And, you know, supporters, opponents all get tired of that. They just want to talk about something different after a while. Well, Donald Trump cannot stop talking about Russia. It's one of the things. I mean, he he, he tweets about it. He did every... it again this morning. Yeah. 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 You know? That's true. And remember, one of the things that came out last week was he's going to have a legal team vetting his tweets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that guy's not there yet or is taking the morning <laughs> off. It's just not going to happen. Ivanka was, no. back. Ivanka was taking her kids to school this morning. <laughs> so she missed, uh, she missed the tweet. Thing. But it's interesting what you said about Bill Clinton. And we've got to uh, – I, I saw something about that this morning. I've got to go back and do a little more research on that. But we remember that during the impeachment stuff, Bill Clinton's ratings – were sky high. Right. And one of the reasons is that I do remember he had brought in Lanny Davis and and they separated the bad stuff over here, the Monica Mm. stuff over here, so that Mike McCurry every day was still out there talking about the business of the country. And Bill Clinton would say, I'm still, that's over there, I'm still here fighting for the American Mm -hmm. people. I'm fighting for you every day, getting this done, getting this done. That's not the case with the Trump White House. Everything is consumed by this sideshow. Right. They're, they're not getting anything done. Look right? at today's schedule. And he's having lunch with Pence, the vice president, yeah. and there's a briefing. And that's it. Right. That's it on the public right. guidance that you get, you know, every day from the White House. Mm-hmm. And so you know what he's doing in the meantime, watching cable television and right. tweeting. You know, or <laughs> meeting with people and not telling you. Or, or maybe too. talking to somebody on the phone and we don't know about it until after the fact. We don't know what's happening. But this pace does, this frenetic pace or this almost crisis to crisis every day. I mean, for that one week, every day at 530, there was another blockbuster story that hit right. the week before he left for Europe. But it's hard to believe that that pace could continue. But certainly while it does continue, nothing else is getting done. In the Congress, at the White House, nothing else is getting done. There's no tax plan. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's something that was scribbled out on one piece of paper. And the Republicans on the Hill are doing what they want to do. There's, there's no health care plan. There's a House bill that's dead on arrival in the Senate. There's no real budget that's dead on arrival, too. And when, you know, you wonder, who are the policy people at the White House who go to the Hill and talk to people about specifics? It's really hard to find out. You know, when we do stories about policy and we're looking for who's the person there, mm-hmm. who's riding herd on that, that person's not always there. Yeah. Um, and we want to do those stories. It makes it tough. Right. I'm telling you, it is a challenge that none of us have ever faced before. Ray Lockers, the Washington Enterprise editor at USA Today, and his book, Nixon's Gamble, is still out there where all good books are sold. Hey, Ray, thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks right. for having me. Run fast. Keep up with the pace. That, <laughs> that's it for today, folks. Have a great Tuesday. We'll be looking for you. This See you right back here Bill tomorrow. Press Show. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, we all know that Donald Trump ran away to Europe and the Middle East trying to put the Russian connection behind him, but it didn't work. It was waiting for him big time when he came home. 
with son-in-law Jared Kushner caught in bed with the Russians. Yes, this is a bad news for Donald Trump on two fronts, substance and optics. On the substance, what we know is that Jared Kushner, back in December 2016, met with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, and a top Russian banker close to Vladimir Putin met at Trump Tower to discuss opening a back channel to Moscow using communications equipment in the Russian embassy. Yes, indeed, back channel to Putin using Russian equipment, which immediately raises two questions. Why the hurry to get so cozy with Russia and not with the UK or Germany or France, for example? And who told Jared Kushner to have this meeting? You know damn well that Jared Kushner didn't act on his own. And then the optics. This is what we can now expect. Testifying about the Russian connection in front of Congress will not only be former outside, former insiders, now outsiders, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, and Carter Page, but the ultimate insider right from the Oval Office, son-in-law Jared Kushner, just like Richard Nixon, just like Watergate. Yep, no matter how you slice it, this is bad news for the Trump White House. This is The Bill Press Show.